welcome all 70 of you to uh, today's sermon on Gnosticism. Man, that just doesn't move. All right. Strange. Today we're going to be talking about Gnosticism. For those of you that don't know me, my name is still Creed. Um, And for those of you that do, you already know my name. Uh, Let's go to the next slide. Maybe we should have worked out a signal, something like that, to indicate this. But here we go. Let's jump right in, because that's what I like to do. Uh, Talking about Gnosticism, as many people call it. Um, Fun facts. One of the earliest, if not the earliest, heresies in the church. Uh, It... It claims origins in, in, some of the, in some of the writings of John and Paul. Um, as far as we can tell, this heresy began right around in the early first century uh, in the church. Um, we don't have a lot of writings for them, so you can't really tell exactly. Uh, and the thing that you have to understand about stuff like this is... Uh, it was it was a work in process, right? It's not like somebody just came along and had all of the things for Gnosticism figured out, and then there was a clear distinction between uh, disciples of Gnosticism and disciples of the church, right? These started as very early ideas, especially this one, which was just a slight deviation in what we believe about the church, and then it blew up over the course of a few centuries. Um, so, Gnostics point to some of John's and some of Paul's writings in order to uh, make their case. They also point to a lot of books that didn't make it into the canon because they were awful, they were horribly written, and believed a lot of bad things. So, we're, we're not going to touch on those because it's going to take way too long to go through all of the other, all of the extra biblical works that feed into this. But in all of your free time that you guys have this week, feel free, go ahead, look it up, read into it. It should only take a few years to get through all of it and, you know, read into all of the uh, information about those. Um, But we will touch on what John and Paul said that led people to believe an early version of Gnosticism that then blew up into what we call full-blown Gnosticism. We don't actually use that phrase, but we do now. Um, Interesting fact, though, there is a... I don't know if you call it like its own religion or a sect called Mandeism. At least that's how I think you pronounce it. I only read it, and I don't know how to read the little things that tell you how to pronounce stuff. So it's Mandeism, as far as we're concerned today. Still alive today in Iraq. So there are people that believe some version of this today. Um, And if you're ever going to Iraq, feel free to use what I'm about to tell you to call into question their entire faith. I'm sure it will go over well. Um... Secret, secret uh, indicator there. So before we get too far into all of the really sweet stuff, I just wanted to go over what, what it is Gnosticism is, all right? Um, these are the two ideas that I think, as far as I can read, are the, like the early ideas, the early kind of small deviations from what we would call Orthodox Christianity. There's a whole big belief structure that's built up around these in order to make this stuff make sense, Uh, and we'll probably go into it because it's really sweet. It's a lot of fun to talk about. So the first one is the physical world is inherently evil, and the spiritual world is inherently good. There is a dualism there. Dualism, meaning two that are at odds with each other, right? And uh, just to make sure that you're catching all of what I'm saying here, that, that means that all of matter, all of everything that you see is irredeemable because it was created evil. There's, there's no saving it. There's nothing you can do about it. The spiritual world is the only thing that's good. All right? 
The second part is salvation is gained through secret knowledge or gnosis, as we are calling it now. Um, Secret knowledge, it it makes it sound very heady, but in my personal opinion, it's more like a a sense of religious, uh, like, fulfillment through knowledge that you have. Um, Both of these held together, though, are are very appealing to to an intellectual such as myself, right? Because if, if you can't tell quite yet, based on what we're looking at here, it places a lot of the work of your faith just on what you know and how you feel about what you know. So when, when you're a smart guy like me, if, if I can gain my salvation just by being a smart guy, like I was born on third and all I got to do is get home. It's great stuff. So I'm a big fan of Gnostic. No, it's terrible. Um, let's go ahead. Let's go to next slide. What? Yeah, it's, it's very subtle. I don't know if you guys caught it, but uh, this is making this a very smooth transition. So uh, I wanted to throw up some of the scripture that we were talking about back when I said all those many minutes ago about John and Paul being some of the, uh, now that Jake's here, I, I wanted to say, sorry, man, calling into question John here. I feel like I'm uh, calling you out specifically. But there were some people who looked at John as somewhat of a Gnostic. Now, to be fair, Paul was a, a bigger influence in this regard, but... We've got stuff here. So the first one is a uh, verse that you guys should recognize. It's the start of the Gospel of John. Um, While this doesn't necessarily point exactly to Gnosticism, uh, what I'm trying to do here just by throwing that verse up here is to remind you of what John kind of sounds like, right? John sounds very mysterious at parts. Um, And while this verse doesn't show it as well, he also shows somewhat of a dualism sometimes in his contrast between light and darkness, right? And and that's that's a big idea in Gnosticism, is that uh, there are two opposing powers that are fighting it out with each other. Light representing the spiritual world, obviously, and darkness representing the material world. Um, 1 Corinthians 15.44, I'm not going to read all of these. You guys know how I feel about this stuff. You can read. I I hope most of you can read. If not, come talk to me later. I will read it to you. But it's up there. You'll read it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.44, again, showing a dualism, and obviously this time this one's one of Paul's works, right? If, If you read, if you were to just pick apart these verses, it would look very much like the physical and spiritual worlds are opposed to each other. Um. And the next two, two uh, verses that I have up here, the Galatians and the Second Corinthians part, again, those are both from Paul. Um, what you should notice here is part of what goes into this secret knowledge that you gain is uh, you, you gain it through some sort of direct revelation, right? So it, it's partially, I guess, some sort of like uh, meditation, right? Some inward searching, some soul searching, but it's also some part of God that is specifically revealing something awesome to you because you are better than everybody else. And, and that's the kind of idea that this is trying to, to push on people. They, they did believe that there were those who had gained some sort of secret knowledge that put them on a pedestal above everybody else. And so these verses sound like Paul's claiming the same sort of thing. Um, You'll notice in the Galatians part, it's proclaimed by by me as not of human origin, but he received it through a revelation of Christ. And that can seem problematic. If you remember, Paul, Paul Paul wasn't one of the original apostles. He gained his knowledge of what was going on through visions as far as he has told us, 
The second part is kind of a repetition of that. And in particular, I actually found a source that says this phrase, caught up to the third heaven, is a very Gnostic idea. Um, they actually used that phrase in, in what they described their religion was like. So, problematic, right? It sounds like Paul was a Gnostic. Um, calls into question a lot of what we believe, right? So, there's this guy. His name's Arrhenius. Um, he lived pretty much entirely in the second century AD, all right? He was the bishop of the second bishop of Lyon. And this is the guy that was the one that came along to refute what we know as Gnosticism. So if you remember before I said, the, the ideas started very early on, very early first century AD, pretty much right after Christ died, which is kind of weird to have a schism so soon. Uh, and they really became a problem around the second century, is about 170, 180, when this guy decided that he needed to, to write something about this. Um, Arrhenius was a disciple of Polycarp. I'm sure that's a, uh, a name you all recognize. Uh, yeah, there we go. Disciple of Polycarp, who was in turn a disciple of John. So in many ways, Arrhenius was John's grandson. Um, and he does claim this in his works, or he does write a little bit about this. Uh, that's kind of how he goes about refuting this, is that he has, he has it on direct authority from John via Polycarp that, uh, that Gnosticism is bad. So he wrote this book called, or a series of five books called Adversus Heresis. I'm really good at Latin, guys. That's the Latin name for it. The Greek name is much longer, and I always forget it. But it specifically calls out the Gnostics. He specifically wrote this book to call out this idea. The story is that there were a bunch of merchants that came in through Lyon that were preaching this sort of Gnostic idea, and he went around searching out people and writings about it to try to figure out what was going on. Because in Asia Minor, bishops were pretty well stretched thin, and normally this type of work, refuting these heretics, would have been their job in Asia. But they were just, there weren't enough of them to do it. So he, being a guy in southeast France, decided that his best bet was to write a book and send it to him instead of, like, traveling there. I don't know if you guys know this, but there were no airplanes then. Uh, there was no highway, so it was very difficult for him to get there. So he's like, hey, I'll write a book, send it over to him. Writes five books. That's outrageous. That's way too many books. But... In it, we have about a thousand New Testament references. So, and the other thing that you have to realize about this is up until this point, the New Testament was not canonized yet, right? And it may come as a surprise to you, there were a lot of other books floating around. Now, most of the books that we have in the New Testament currently today, we, back then, they very quickly realized that these should be canonized. These are definitely from the people that we think they're from. They're preaching good things. Um, but in his time, he had to wade through a lot of crap, try to figure that out. Um, interestingly enough, he was one of probably the first person, but then again, you know, records, not all that great. Sometimes things catch on fire. It happens. Um, probably the first guy that canonized, or that said that all four Gospels that we have right now are the legit Gospels. For the most part, other people would pick one and go with that one. In particular, uh, Asia Minor really liked the Gospel of John, so that was like their book. Um, some people said there were more Gospels that should be legit, but this guy picked the first four, and we have them now today. Um, of the books that are currently in the New Testament, he quoted like 23 out of those 27, so he pretty well had 
all of the books that we have today uh, picked out as ones that should be credible sources. Um, so, smart guy, man. He picked it out. I wouldn't have been able to do that. That's rough stuff. Okay. So, um, we'll, we'll leave this slide up here for a moment, but uh, actually, if you could go back to the third slide. Now, nah, the second slide. I put these in a good order. So, um, let's, let's talk about these ideas for a moment, because um, I'm a guy that likes to twist the rules, right? It's what makes me so good at board games, one of my great loves. Um, I like to twist the rules, I like to bend the rules, I like to really just abuse rules to, to see what they can give me. So when you show me a list like this, I see really awesome stuff happening, and I want to take you there, because I suspect that you guys aren't like that. You don't abuse things the way that I do. So, let's start off really easy. If I said that the physical world is inherently evil, that there is nothing that you can do to save it, there's nothing that you can do to redeem it, what are you going to do with that? How does that affect how you view sin? Sin doesn't matter then, right? It doesn't matter if you sin zero times, you sin a million times. There was no redeeming it to, the, to begin with, right? So you go do you, you do whatever you want. That's appealing, I like that. Obviously, that doesn't fit in with what we uh, believe about Orthodox Christianity. We'll get there, so please don't leave right now. Give me a few minutes and we'll come back to this. So, they believed that you could sin as much as you want. The physical world was never going to be saved anyway. Don't worry about it. So, you know, go on your happy day. Do whatever it is you want. You'll be fine. Salvation, gained through secret knowledge, we've kind of already touched on this. If, if all that it takes for you to gain your salvation is, is some sort of like meditation, some, some inner clarity, some looking to the sky, this becomes a very subjective religion, right? What it does is all that... All that it requires for your salvation is essentially for you to decide that you're saved. For you to decide that you have, either to decide that you've seen some sort of vision that grants you your salvation, or to just tell people you did. Um, that's, that's all you got. That's all you got to do. So, we've got this really awesome religion. Don't disregard that other Christianity. I got a new one for you. You can sin as much as you want, and you're saved when you decide you are. Now, is anybody interested? I know I am. Um, I will throw out there uh, that both of, these idea, both of these ideas are things that I've engaged with in my personal life. If we can allow us a moment for me to talk about how good I am at this. Um, I have gained this secret knowledge. No, I'm just kidding. So if, if you guys remember, though, back a couple years ago when I first got up at the other church to talk to you, uh, I'm sure many of you were there. I'm sure you all took great notes and you've reviewed them, I'm assuming like monthly, just so you can keep up on what you know about Creed. Um, I, I mentioned that there's a, a, one of the overarching themes of my journey with God is not viewing God through when I'm not sitting, right? Um, th this, this first idea is something, like I said, that I've, I've engaged with is probably the right, right way to go about saying this. Maybe... Uh, fall into, the, into this trap might be another way. Because uh, at least in my early walk, right, you view sin as if you do it, God doesn't love you anymore, right? One sin, no more, no more God love. And that's, that's a problem in its own right, but that's kind of what it was that I was believing through my actions, right? So you, the, the trap is to go completely the other way 
is to say, well, now that we're saved, we can sin as much as we want. Sin doesn't matter anymore. And so you have to kind of keep a balance between these two ideas as you're going through your life. Gnostics would fall completely over on the other side, right? Sin as much as you want, it doesn't matter. And I guess I hesitate to say there is kind of some truth to that. There's a little bit of truth that we can that we can work with, that you can engage with, that you can try to apply to your own life in some way and and be better for it. But the the trick is not to go 100% towards that side, right? It's true. Because of Christ's sacrifice, that sin doesn't really hold any power over us anymore. Our sins don't matter because they've been forgiven. But that doesn't mean that we can keep doing it as much as we want. Um, That doesn't mean that sin's okay for us. It's still destructive behavior, right? Um, whereas the Gnostics would not res- recognize that at all. Um, a- additionally, the, the secret knowledge part is also something that I've engaged with before. If you remember again from my, uh, my earlier talkings, uh, because of how smart I think I am, uh, a lot of what my early faith was was learning more things. And again, there is truth to that. There is goodness that can come out of that. You should try to learn more about your faith. Right? You want to know why you believe the things that you do. But a lot of what I believed about faith was wrapped up in how much I knew about God as opposed to how much I walked with God. And there's a big difference between those things. Again, Gnostics would not recognize that difference. The more you know or the more that you claim you know, the more holy you are and the better you are over other people. So go ahead and go back to the refutation slide. Got it. We should really adopt this hand gesture. It's, it's working. It's working great. So, the, the refutation, um, Arrhenius had five books, right? The first book was his attempts at cataloging what he had seen in, of Gnostics, like what he had found Gnosticism was. It's, we've, we've since come to find that it's not complete, but that's not really what he was trying to do, right? He wasn't trying to catalog it exactly. He's trying to get a general sense of what it was, you know, define his terms so that he could refute it later. The other four books is where he goes about refuting it, and uh, here are, I guess, some verses that, if I remember right, he tied in there, or maybe this was just something else. I don't remember. Let's go with, he, he said some of these things. The, the first, the biggest thing, the biggest thing that, that, uh, that really turns this thought on its head is Christ's and or God's focus on the physical world, right? So Gnosticism sounds like a great idea if you're not really familiar with what Scripture says. If, if all your exposure to Scripture is, is like what you heard in Sunday school, right? It's relying on people kind of having vague memories on what it means to be Christian and then expounding on those. But if you read the Bible, I don't know if you have, uh, he focuses so much on what's going on in the physical world. If Christ, if Christ focused so much on that, then how can we say that it is irredeemable, right? He, he worked very hard to redeem it. Um, that's, that's the basic thought for, for what we're going here. Uh, John 14, 6. Um, if you remember that uh, second part, salvation is gained through secret knowledge, through personal revelation. Christ many times says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christ says that he's the way to salvation, which directly contradicts what Gnostics are saying, that personal revelation is the way to salvation. Um, and the, the second two, um, a, a big part of that first idea, physical world is evil, spiritual world is uh, good, 
if you hold that to be true, then you have to start changing what it is you believe about certain parts of Scripture, you know, rewriting them or removing them. And many parts of Scripture claim that Christ came in the flesh, right? That's problematic because if the perfect being can enter into what you believe to be is inherently evil, what does that say about God, right? You either have to believe that this God is not actually perfectly good, or you have to believe he didn't actually do that. So they chose that one. It's, it's a lot easier to justify, I guess, in their, in their idea. So they, they believe that uh, Christ didn't actually come in the flesh, that he was just a spiritual being that was, I guess, kind of like puppet mastering this body that we call Jesus, and that's how it worked. Well, a lot of scripture says that he did come in the flesh, and so you can't, you can't reconcile those two thoughts. They can't both be true at the same time. Orthodox Christianity says he came in the flesh. Totally happened, bro. So you have to choose one. Hey, that's, uh, that's the end of my slides. Um, so those basic ideas about Gnosticism, some really cool stuff. Uh, I hope that you follow me into the... No, I'm just kidding. Do not follow into this. Um, I hope that you have learned enough. Are there any questions? So one of the things I really love about um, just our church and just the church in general now is that the idea of intellectualism, education, things like that is being challenged culturally. Uh, and even questions like we were just asking about, like, well, what do you do with original sin? You know, for so long we believe that, you know, um, and the church has taught that, you know, you're just born sinful. But what does that mean then? How, how are these children redeemed and things like that? And so, like, these are good questions that we need to be asking. This is something theologically that applies to why we believe what we believe. Now, personally, not as a church thing, I tend to take an Eastern Orthodox approach to sin, is that we're not born completely depraved or with sin, but we will become sinful. Um, but that's one of the beautiful things about our church is that we want this dialogue to happen. We want this conversation to happen. We want this, I mean, if Christ's body was broken uh, and poured out for us, it wasn't just so that we wouldn't do anything about it. It's so that we would be built up, that we would find him as being the head, that we would turn towards him, that we'd collectively ask each other questions. This is why the church body is just as important and the church community is just as important as our relationship with Christ. It's, a, it's very much one and the same. You know, there's a reason why Adam had to have Eve and not just God. This idea that we holistically need to work together as the body of Christ as well as pursuing Christ. So in doing so, and as we go through these concepts of Gnosticism and stuff like that, we see it today. And like I mentioned, you know, just a little bit ago, we, it came back up in history with Occam and Occam's razor and things like that. And the idea that morality doesn't exist, that how can Creed have a definition for love and I have a definition for love, but his love is different than my love, but yet we use this word. And so Occam would say it's just words. But the danger of that is then what Christ has done. His sacrifice that he has made for all of humanity would be just that, would just be words. There would be no realness to it. There would be no redemptive quality to it. So as much as these things can become heady, and sometimes we can get um, very excited and infatuated with how great we sound or how smart we feel, it is important that we pursue it, but as Creed was saying, that we're also walking with God through this, not just you know pursuing him or learning what we can spout about him or sounding intelligent about it, but we truly are walking with him. At the end of the day, if it's without love, it means nothing. If it's not taking care of the orphan, if it's not taking care of the people that went through a loss of a child, if it's not doing those things, then it, it has no value. It has no worth in terms of the church. So as you go into communion, as you reflect, I would ask that you would ask God, like, where is he challenging you to grow? 
uh, intellectually as well as physically and spiritually in your pursuit with him. But more importantly, where is he allowing you to be poured out and broken as he did? If we're supposed to be representing Christ into this world, it's not that we just look at it as fallen and say, well, forget the world. No, we're called to be breaking ourselves and pouring out with it as well. stars in the night, I wonder, at your lightning in the sky, I shudder, your glory is a blanket that covers every living thing, I'm in awe at the majesty of who you are. Love is a seal burned inside my heart. All of the day, I want to be where you are, Holy Father. And it feels like there's not enough praise inside of me. All these words, all my heart can sing is holy, you are holy.
of all these words, all my heart can sing is holy. You are holy. Jesus Christ, you bled your lovely down yourself and gave me life. Naked shame you hung and you were lifted high. Here I lay in awe and wonder. I am afraid.